Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're entering the home stretch of our first ever flash fiction contest, and while we were hoping for a good turnout, I have to say I'm blown away by both the quantity and quality of the entries we've received. Thank you so much to everyone who's submitted so far, and for those of you who've been waiting to slide in under the line, the hands on the old grandfather clock are fast approaching midnight. So you'd better get those quills scratching, or keyboard clacking, and get your story in before it's too late. You have until midnight on Monday the 15th. Again, TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest will give you all of the details you need, as well as the muse from which to spin your dark tale. Hurry, time is almost up. But as one door closes, another opens. 
we have another contest this week, a special giveaway for our listeners, a chance to win a free download of the new movie Becky. Streaming now on Redbox On Demand, Lulu Wilson, Kevin James, and Joel McHale star in the pulse-pounding thriller Becky. When a spunky and rebellious teen goes on a weekend getaway to a lake house with her father, things take a turn for the worse when a group of convicts wreak havoc on their lives, forcing an epic fight for survival. Stream Becky instantly on Redbox On Demand today, rated R. Tales to Terrify has secured a handful of free downloads for Becky, and we want you, yes you, to win one. Head over to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages in the next couple of days, give us a follow if you don't already, then leave a comment on the Becky contest post. We'll choose two lucky winners to receive a free download code for the movie, but you've only got until midnight on Wednesday, June 17th to enter. If you want even more chances to win, sign up to support Tales to Terrify on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. I've got an additional three codes we'll be giving away to three randomly selected Patreon supporters. Now for the fine print. Since the free download codes only work in the United States, unfortunately this contest is only open to listeners in the U.S. I've linked to the trailer for Becky in the show notes if you'd like to have a watch. It looks like gory fun, and Kevin James seems to look the role in a way I never could have expected. And speaking of our awesome Patreon supporters, this week I'd like to give a shout-out to Cheryl A. Jones, Kev Mann, and Tony C. Smith from our former mothership, the District of Wonders, as well as to one of our newest patrons, Vrildox. Words can't properly express the appreciation we have for your support. And a quick update for those amazing patrons who support us at the $10 or higher level, I've been working hard to get everything organized and addressed, and our first shipment of dark merch will be going out in the next handful of days. If you want to see what kinds of great stuff to expect, or what you're missing out on, I'll be posting some pictures on our social channels to give you a taste. Well, now that your appetite is wet, I'm sure you're getting restless to hit the road. I know I am. This week finds us in the middle of one of Vancouver's most popular summertime destinations. A beautiful, verdant escape at the edge of the city's bustling downtown core, Stanley Park has got a little something for everyone. Scenic biking and walking paths that wind along the shoreline. Dense, massive, old-growth forest to explore. Open fields and playgrounds. Not to mention the popular Vancouver Aquarium. When I was a kid, we'd head west just about every summer, and I remember spending full days in Stanley Park, exploring and checking out the attractions. But what I didn't realize then is that there's an island just off the southeastern tip of the park an island with a dark history and sinister reputation. An island whose name really kind of says it all. Dead Man's Island. While it's closed to the public now, there are centuries worth of dark tales that stem from its shores. Originally called the Island of Dead Men by the indigenous Squamish people, 
it was the site of a great battle. Two First Nations, one from the north, one from the south, had both claimed the island as their own territory. Both nations were proud and strong, and compromise wasn't an option. Not only were the two nations matched in their determination, it seemed they were matched in their strength and skill on the battlefield, too. As the fighting over the small piece of land dragged on, neither side could get a leg up on the other. Until one night, the southern nation crept into the camps of the north and kidnapped two hundred women, children, and elders. They sent a message to the north, Abandon all claim to the island, and we'll send your people home. And the northern nation countered, Never. But at least let us trade warriors for the women, children, and elders. We'll trade you one warrior for every other soul you release. A meeting was arranged on Dead Man's Island. As agreed, a handful of leaders from the south arrived on the day with their captives in tow. The north had brought two hundred young warriors, unarmed and ready to be escorted away to captivity. The tension in the air was thick and electric. The exchange seemed to go fairly smoothly. But as the North gathered their women, children, and elders and began to lead them home, screams and the sound of weapons rang out through the trees. Hiding in the trees were many of the South's most seasoned fighters. They emerged from the forest and cut down the young warriors, slaughtered all two hundred to a man. In her book Legends of Vancouver, Mohawk writer E. Pauline Johnson quotes the tale as told to her by Chief Joe Capilano. In the morning, the southern tribes found the spot where they fell, filled with flaming fireflowers. Dread terror seized upon them. They abandoned the island. In the depths of the undergrowth on Dead Man's Island, there blossomed a flower of flaming beauty. But somewhere down in the sanctuary of its petals pulsed the heart's blood of many and valiant men. Legend has it that neither nation tried to claim stake to the island again. Of course, that can't be said for the more colonial powers. In the 1860s, after the government offered to sell the island to his friend and business partner, John Morton decided to take a trip to explore the island himself. But when he arrived, he found something much more ominous than flowers. As the gentle waves carried his small rowboat to shore, he could make out something odd about the trees. They seemed strangely shaped, bulky and angular in places. Once the boat was moored, Morton set off to take a closer look. As he neared the trees and gazed up, a shiver ran down his spine. Boxes. Large red cedar boxes. Balanced precariously across limbs, hanging high on the branches, hidden in foliage. The sight was so alien and unsettling, but there was a tiny part of his mind that insisted they reminded him of something. Morton slowly stepped beneath the gnarled branches of a large fir and studied the box above his head. The rough wood looked old. Gingerly, 
he raised his walking stick to poke at the underside of the box. As soon as he made contact, the rotted wood crumbled and a shower of debris rained down on Morton's upturned face. He jumped back, coughing and sputtering, a mouthful of dust and who knows what else. When he examined what had fallen from the box, it was more than pine needles and splinters of old timber. They were bones, human bones. The boxes were caskets. Like the southern nation before him, Morton, too, left the island in a hurry, with a sense of dread nipping at his heels. The island's seen many more dead since then. In the 1890s, as a plague of smallpox ravaged Vancouver, the sick were sent to the island for quarantine, and either got better and returned home, or they became yet another set of bones left to decay on the island. In the early 1930s, it became the center of a logging dispute. It was leased by the federal government to an American industrialist set on building a lumber mill, but the local people and authorities wouldn't have it. Police were regularly stationed on the island to prevent anyone from logging there, even one time occupying the island overnight. By morning, though, the officers were an exhausted mess, having barely slept thanks to the constant clacking of bones from the forest and the tortured sounds of dying men drifting through the trees. The island is now home to the HMCS Discovery Naval Reserve, but strange occurrences are still the norm for the island. Sure, there's the standard spook fare, footsteps, voices, moving furniture, but on certain nights, when the sea is calm and quiet, a glow rises up through the trees creeping like tendrils of mist. And if you wait, watch carefully and quietly, the glow will start to coalesce, its boundaries to sharpen into the shape of a person. So, while some of the bodies may have been moved, it seems there are just too many on Dead Man's Island for some of those spirits not to linger. For us, though, I think it's time we moved on to our fiction. We have one tale for you this evening that comes to us from Jonathan Robbins Leon. Jonathan Robbins Leon is an author of queer contemporary and supernatural fiction. He wrote the screenplay for Signal Lost, which recently debuted at the Central Florida Film Festival, and his work has appeared on A Story Most Queer. Follow him on Twitter at jrobbinsleon to enjoy his gushing over books, boys, and spooks. Children of the Night, join me for Jonathan Robbins Leon's Man of the House, a Tales to Terrify original. For the hundredth time that morning, Vicky refreshed the hurricane tracker on her phone. On the map, the hurricane's path was a giant pink tongue hanging out of the ocean, 
flicking the entire coast of their state, with Clydesville right in the red center. Evacuation had been mandatory, but Dean had decided they would stay put. Outside, it was sunny and still. It was easy to believe that her husband was right, that everyone who had boarded up and left yesterday was overreacting. Stepping out on the porch, however, Vicky sensed the tension lurking beneath the tranquility around her. It was the calm of a Venus flytrap just before its lashed leaves snap shut. It still wasn't too late. They could leave now, even if it meant sleeping in the truck because they couldn't find a hotel. She considered begging Dean when he got back with the wood to let her and Mason evacuate, but she knew that it would be fruitless. He'd made his decision. Back inside, she found the TV switched off. Mason was in his room. You didn't want to finish your shows? She asked. He shook his head. In front of him on the carpet were his action figures, gruesome characters from comic books, clutching chain maces and hatchets dripping with blood. Vicky hadn't wanted to buy them for Mason, had in fact used the money she'd saved to buy him a used video game console for his birthday. He pretended to like his present, but it sat in the box for two weeks. Other mothers might have been glad their children didn't want to while hours away staring at the TV, but Vicky had hoped for just that. It would have been nice to see Mason behaving like a normal seven-year-old boy. Eventually, she returned the console and let Mason get what he wanted. She hovered in the doorway. Mason adjusted the limbs of the figure with such precision that he might have been making a stop-motion movie. He looked up from his play and frowned at her presence. I'm playing with Gung Gung. That name. It made her think of cave paintings and those ugly, carved figures that were smaller than a hand and supposedly older than written language. It sounded like something dug out of the earth that should have been left undisturbed. Vicky had read that acknowledging their imaginary friends was an important way of showing children they were normal. Forcing a smile, she said, Tell him I said hi. She was halfway down the hallway when her son called back. He says hi. She suppressed a shudder and reminded herself that Gung Gung was only a phase. Mason would grow out of it. Without meaning to, she pulled up the tracker again, not really even looking. She needed to keep busy. Water. Didn't people on the news always warn about contaminated water after a storm? She took out all the big bowls and pots she had in the kitchen. Lining them up on the counter, she filled them at the sink. Coming from a well, their water always had a distinctly metallic taste, and seeing it gathered in bowls, its cloudiness evident, disturbed Vicky. She looked around her kitchen for something else to do. Everyone who had ever been inside said that this was the nicest room in the house. The rest were paneled in dark, cheap wood, moss-green carpet growing underfoot. Only one window per room meant that each was like its own foresty prison cell. Yet the kitchen had three windows. Vicky had painted the old cabinets yellow to remind her of sunflowers, and though it was peeling in the corners, she liked to think that the linoleum floor looked like a brown and tan patchwork quilt. It was in this room that Vicky cooked and ironed, and it was here that she spent hours rhinestoning phone cases to sell online, because while Dean forbade her from getting a job, he also refused to give her any money over what she needed for groceries. 
This room usually served as proof to Vicky that life, like the house itself, had its bright spots. Right now, though, she felt as though she could see through her own attempts to dress it up with yellow paint and lace curtains, and that despite her efforts, it remained a stingy room in a mean little house. Dean's truck rattled up the driveway. At the sound of his boots stomping in the house, Mason could be heard scurrying to put away his toys. When Daddy got home, there was no more play. It pained Vicky that, like some kind of sun-starved flower, her son had adapted so well to the laws of his environment. Boy, come outside and help with this wood, Dean's voice thundered. Mason did as he was told. The wood itself must have been stolen. It was new, but there were nail holes where it had probably been attached to some other house. This meant that even the hardware store on the edge of town was closed. One by one, each sheet of plywood was secured over the windows of the house. The kitchen was last. Vicky sat at the table with a cup of coffee as the sunlight disappeared a third at a time. When only one window remained, she said a silent prayer that the house would stand. And then the sun was gone. The Blackwell family ate dinner inside their fortress. Everyone stuffed themselves on hot dogs and oven-baked fries. Vicky hadn't bothered making a vegetable. The news replayed video clips from the Caribbean. Streets gushing brown water, flattened houses, mud-caked people shuffling to God knows where now that their town was only debris. Hurricane Ada had done its best to level those tropical islands. Then it spent some time recharging in the ocean, growing in fury, and now it was intent on another round of destruction. The health benefits of a side vegetable seemed irrelevant. The sound of the rain came like velveted finger taps. Dean opened the door, and Vicky was surprised to see it was still light. Here we go, he said into the wind that was just starting to pick up. Come on, motherfucker, he laughed. After Vicky and Mason had finished washing dishes, she told him to go ahead and take a bath. It might be the last hot one for a few days if the water's off, she said. From his chair in the living room, Dean called for a beer. Reality trash was on the TV when she brought it to him. When's howling now? She hadn't even noticed until he said it. The rain had masked the growing moan of the wind. We're in for a ride, Dean said. Should have gotten out of here, she replied. Without looking away from the TV, Dean flung a hand out, smacking her across the mouth. This was his way, no thought put into it, just enough lazy force to make it clear you should shut the hell up. She stared at his profile, rage broiling through her. It wasn't rage with Dean, though, but with herself. Why wasn't she able to stand up to him? He wasn't so big. Her daddy had been bigger and meaner, but she'd never shied away from standing her ground with him. But maybe people are only fearless when they're young. She'd let Dean hit her more times than she could count. Worse, she'd not known how to stop him from laying hands on her precious boy. Now... If the hurricane tracker was right, she and Mason might die in this shitty house and she hadn't done a thing to stop it from happening. Dean jammed a finger up his nose. Vicky watched him like a primatologist as he dug in his nostril, removed his finger, and flicked something that landed unseen in the green carpet.
Could the hurricane kill us? Mason asked. With the door closed, the relentless hum of the storm made his bedroom sound like the inside of a dryer. Vicky pulled the covers around him. No, she said. It's just very loud. Mason frowned at her. Gung Gung say as the hurricane could rip the roof off the house and suck us all out. She sat on the edge of the bed. Mason let her hold his hand. Well, Gung Gung is probably not as old as Mommy. I've lived through a lot of hurricanes. He was quiet for a second, looking just over her shoulder. Vicky turned to see if Dean was there, but it was only an empty corner of the room, softly shadowed like a watercolor. He says he's older than you, Mason said. Much older. Vicky drew back her hand. This was why other children did not take to Mason. He said strange things. If he's so much older, she said, then he ought to know not to go around scaring little boys with made-up stories. She tucked the covers tight around her son's shoulders, as if this would protect him from flying away if the roof really was peeled off. Love you, Mommy, he said, and rolled over to sleep. You want some of this? Dean asked, pulling a frosty plastic bottle of clear liquor out of the freezer. She shook her head, but he splashed the stuff into two coffee mugs anyway. I'm trying to be nice to you, he said, holding the mug out to her. She knew what he was trying to do. It was a nightly standoff between the two of them. Most nights, Dean was the first to get drunk. He'd pass out on the couch, and Vicky had the bed to herself. Regular enough to keep the game spicy, though, she'd be the first one to feel the liquor. Dean would intuit that she was drunk enough to screw, and he'd use his mouth on her neck and say the things that had always worked, and so convince her to open her legs. Vicky accepted the mug he held out to her. She hated herself for it, but her tongue did love the biting chill of shine. Worse, sometimes she liked the game, too. Liked it when the present became blurry and Dean was again the man she'd thought he was when they'd met. The handsome, trim-bodied handyman who always asked to sit in her section at the diner. When she was drunk... She could want him just for his solid, powerful body and ignore the ruin he'd made of her life. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. She was awake. The storm shrieked outside like a creature throwing back its head with open, angry jaws. It was dark, but no. As her eyes adjusted, she perceived a light. The paneled wall glowed a soft amber. Strange. Was she dreaming? She rolled over to ask Dean and was surprised to see candlelight. Mason stood by the bed, one of the heavy jar candles from under her bathroom sink held out over his father. Only the scent was all wrong. Not cucumber and mint at all, but fallen leaves gone rotten, turning to sludge in some dark place. Mason, what are you doing? she whispered. Gungung wanted to meet Daddy. Dean groaned, and she knew how foul he'd be if his son woke him up. Go to bed, she said. She reached for the candle, but Mason jerked it away from her, and hot wax came splashing down on his father's face. Dean woke with a dragon's roar, out of bed in a shot. Mason dropped the candle. In the last flash of light, Vicky saw her husband's arm spring out, his hand almost at Mason's throat. You son of a bitch, Dean said. Vicky lunged forward, fanning her arms to find her husband and son in the dark. Don't hurt him! There were scuffling sounds. At a whimper from Mason, Vicky's mother love grew fangs. She flung herself in the direction of the noises, finding her husband's body in the dark, scratching and kicking wildly. He thrust her from him. She landed against the bedroom wall. Run, Mason! She screamed, and she felt a rush of air as he scurried past her. Get your ass back here, Dean yelled. He was still drunk, and the hurricane was upon them like a preview of the apocalypse. If he found Mason, he wouldn't stop at one blow tonight. Vicky felt for the fallen candle she knew to be there. Finding it, she reached back and sent it hurtling in the dark. There was the thud crack of glass and skull, then the dumb rumble of a giant animal hitting the floor. Then nothing. Like a broken doll, Vicky struggled to stand. Her body ached, and she shook like a house in the wind. But somehow she made it past her unconscious husband, the glass on the floor, and into the living room. Mason, she whispered. Mason, it's mommy. They needed to leave. Unless Dean had time to cool off, he would kill them when he came to. They could hide in the car. She grabbed the keys from the hook and pushed the front door open against the wind. Mason, come with me. But any hope of finding refuge disappeared, for the rain was so heavy, Vicky couldn't see the car. 
While she stood with the door gaping open, the limb of a tree was hurled across their front yard and against the neighbor's van, where it landed with a metallic crunch. The sound roused her husband, who groaned from the bedroom. Vicky tried to pull the door closed, but there wasn't time. She ducked between the wall and the sofa. There were footsteps. Then, Dean let out a sharp note of pain. It was still dark, but the open door allowed Vicky to see her husband's shadow as he hobbled into the living room. Vicky, he called. Going over to the door, he looked out and yelled her name. When she didn't answer, he screamed into the black night. You stupid bitch! In Vicky's hands were the keys, the fob clutched between her index finger and thumb. Watching Dean's shadow closely, she squeezed down on the lock button. There was a flash of light and a happy chirping noise. There you are, Dean said through gritted teeth. Wearing only his boxers, he stepped into the storm. Vicky wriggled out from behind the couch. Looking into the night, she could just make out the red of Dean's undershorts, but the rain was like a whirring curtain of iron filings, and she lost sight of him. Never before had she defied him in an outright way. If he returned, soaked with rain and rage, what would he do? An idea occurred to her, as if whispered in her ear. Close the door. Once thought, it had to be obeyed. She reached out to grab the knob. With all her strength, she pulled the door. The wind tried to suck it back from her. Digging in her heels, she dove with her upper body towards the house. The door came with her, slamming shut. She turned the lock and slid the deadbolt into place. At once, it was quiet. Outside, the wind had ripped through her ears, and now it was like being deaf. This, paired with the utter darkness of the house, turned the room into a kind of tomb. Vicky felt sure that if she reached out her hand, she would feel carved stone walls. Though she'd survived hurricanes before, Vicky had never faced one outside until now. What her experience had not prepared her for was the powerful majesty of a hurricane. Ada might have been a goddess holding the world in one of her hands while her many others ripped it apart at random. Vicky hoped that such a goddess would regard Dean as an offering. Take him, she whispered, and then clamped her mouth shut in horror at herself. Mama. It was Mason. How long he'd been there, she didn't know. Had he seen her lock the door against his father? I'm here, baby. Are you okay? She asked, attempting to keep her voice steady and sweet. Is the storm almost over? Fanning out her arms, she found her son in the darkness. Picking him up, she carried him to his room. Together, they climbed into bed. She would not fall asleep, for she had to stay alert lest Dean find some way inside. The storm outside could use any of the bordering pines to smash the house. Floods, too, could come. Yet, despite these threats, Vicky felt calm with her son asleep in her arms. Mason's breath came in gentle whistles. By the time Vicky realized her own breath had fallen into the same rhythm, she already lacked the energy to recall why she needed to fight against sleep. A golden rectangle glowed in the darkness. Opening her eyes, Vicky saw that the sun was edging its way around the board on the window. She was alone in the bed. Mason, she called, her voice hoarse with sleep. 
In the kitchen, she found a box of cereal open on the counter. A bowl with leftover milk was on the table. She wiped crust from her eyes and shuffled into the living room. A chair was by the door, and the bolt had been undone. Vicky ran to the door, flinging it open. She froze at what she saw. The larger trees had fallen, exposing their roots to the air like muddy tentacles. The smaller ones were still bent at steep angles with the memory of the wind. Looking to the left, she could see straight into her neighbor's bedroom. The roof had been ripped away and the exterior wall had fallen, leaving behind a giant dollhouse. Further up the road, where the neighborhood sloped down a hill, only the top half of first-floor windows could be seen above the water. A cat paced on one of the roofs, the only living thing in sight. Vicky ran to find her shoes. She grabbed Mason's too and set off to find him. Every few yards she called for her son, but nothing stirred. There were other houses, like hers, that had only lost a few shingles or suffered a broken window. Far more, though, had trees laying across them or even sticking out of the top like straws in a cup. Some were just gone, reduced to a pile of wood that looked too scanty to have ever been a whole house. There were no people. Half a block away, Vicky saw what she first mistook for the top of a noose dangling from a tree limb. It creaked back and forth. Rounding a clump of bushes, she found not a body, but a tire swing. With his legs stuck through the middle, there was her own barefooted boy. At the sight of his mother, he let the swing slow to a stop. Gun Gun is gone, he said. I looked everywhere. His face was so pitiful that Vicky decided her scolding would keep. She put on his shoes, then led him home by the hand. They walked in silence, both gaping at the damage they saw. Vicky had begun to feel that all of it had an odd sort of beauty. It was like the world had ended, and now she and Mason were free to live amongst the ruins. Do you think the storm took him away? Mason asked. Maybe, honey, she said. But you know what? Maybe it's good. You can find a new friend. Not Gung Gung, Mason said. I mean, Daddy. Vicky stopped, looking at her son to study his face. What made you ask that? He was outside. When you closed the door? So he knew. Vicky let go of his hand. Turning away from him, she tried to think of what to say. What excuse did she have for what she'd done? And was he dead? She'd been so intent on finding Mason that it hadn't even dawned on her that Dean ought to have reappeared by now if he wasn't. She faced the boy, her mouth still dry of an explanation. I'm hungry, he said. He took her hand again, and they kept walking. They were rounding the driveway when Mason stopped and pointed. Just where the road disappeared into the murky water flooding the low end of the neighborhood, there was a man beached on the asphalt. It was Dean. Stay on the porch, Vicky said, but Mason clung to her hand. Together, they approached the naked and battered body. All over, it had been nicked and slashed by flying debris. An open gash on the forehead was caked with mud. It seemed impossible, but the man was breathing. Vicky nudged him with her foot, but he didn't move. Go get the quilt off my bed, she told Mason.
She'd used the blanket to drag him across the yard, but getting him up the porch stairs had nearly thrown out her back. Now, with a pain patch affixed to her upper neck, she was wiping Dean down with a hot rag. When he didn't wake, after she poured rubbing alcohol into the sliver on his face, Vicky figured he'd be out for the day. Her phone was dead, but Mason's battery-operated radio reported that emergency services were suspended until the roads could be cleared, which meant anyone hurt or stranded was just SOL. After all, the government had warned citizens on the coast to stay at their own peril. There was nothing to do but wait. She tugged a new pair of underwear up Dean's legs and draped a blanket over him. At lunchtime, Vicky and Mason went outside to make a fire. Since the air in the fridge was already tepid, they drank the milk from the carton and made a meal of the remaining eggs and bacon. When they were sick with food, they went back inside and lit candles. Mason sat on the living room floor with his action figures, but Vicky saw that he only pretended to play. Like her, he was absorbed in staring at the unconscious man on the couch. Maybe he too was wondering what would happen when he woke up, wishing that he wouldn't. To stay awake all night would have meant using up the candles and the power could be out for weeks. Vicky told Mason to take a candle and go brush his teeth while she did the same. She took another and made her way to the bathroom, taking slow steps because here and there were fragments of glass. There was something else, too. Something dark that had matted the fur of the carpet. Vicky bent down to examine it in the weak candlelight. Dried blood. A trail of it. Dean must have cut his foot. She got out the rubbing alcohol again. Peeling back the blanket, she examined one of Dean's feet, then the other. But there was no cut. Mason nudged his mother awake. They'd slept in his room again, with the door locked. She opened her eyes and was about to say her good mornings when she heard noises from the kitchen. A cabinet was opened, then shut, rustling like an animal going through the trash. He was awake. She rose from the bed, but Mason held fast to her hand, trying to keep her from going. Gently extricating herself from his grip, she opened the door. Dean was shoveling fistfuls of cereal from the box into his mouth. He didn't look up at the approach of his wife and son. Instead, he moved on to a package of lunch meat from the fridge. Vicky could smell its rancidness from across the room. Still, Dean ate it as one big clump. This gone, he opened the peanut canister and shook half its contents into his mouth. He munched these, and the frenzy of his hunger seemed to wind down. Mother and son remained still, not wanting to attract attention. Dean walked past them and into the bedroom. He emerged moments later, dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. In his hand was a crowbar and Vicky pushed Mason behind her, sucking in her breath as Dean came near them. He only reached for his boots under the table and sat down to put them on. Taking the crowbar with him, he went outside. Vicky and Mason were frozen, waiting for what came next. A loud crack made them jump. Light spilled into the room, and Dean was enframed in the now unboarded window. He worked all morning, ripping the boards away and patching the holes left behind. Later, he climbed a ladder to replace the missing shingles. Vicky took Mason outside, and together they gathered and raked debris into a pile by the curb. Neither of them spoke more than a whisper while they worked. 
No neighbors had returned, which could only mean the roads were a mess. By the time the sun turned orange, Dean had put away his tools and was pawing at the grass with his boot to look for any nails he'd dropped. Something mewed. Dean stopped, frowning. The noise came again, still soft in tone but growing in volume. Vicky set down her rake and followed at a distance as Dean stomped in the direction of the sound. He tracked the noise to the same place he'd been found the day before, at the edge of the water. Peering down the flooded road, he caught sight of the roof-bound cat. Vicky wanted to ask what Dean was up to, but all day he'd been silent. She dreaded what was to come. Surely all of this quiet was merely a prelude. When they were inside again, maybe as soon as she was comfortable and convinced he had forgotten or forgiven, that's when he'd let her have it. The cat walked on the very edge of the roof, yowling now that it saw people. It was considering whether to jump, Vicky could see. But there was no dry place for it to land, and the water was an uninviting black. It must have been desperate for food and company. Poor thing, Vicky thought. Dean turned and looked at her, and she realized she'd said the words aloud. His eyes narrowed, not with meanness, but like he'd now only realized she was there. Lowing, the cat tested its paws on the gutter. Dean bunched his hands into fists, then he stepped into the water. His boots must have gotten filled, for he had to go slow. Yet he waded deeper and deeper into the muck, never hesitating before taking another step, his eyes always fixed on the cat. Mason took his mother's hand. Is Daddy gonna hurt her? he asked. I don't know, she said, the truth slipping from her lips without permission. It wasn't like Dean to go out of his way to injure an animal, but he wasn't shy about giving a kick if any strayed into his yard. He was in front of the cat's house now, waist deep in water. Mason squeezed his mother's hand limp, and she held her breath. A plastic garbage bin was floating near him, and Dean grabbed it and wrenched off the lid. He held it up for the cat to see, then set it upside down on the water. Seeing its chance, the cat dropped from the roof onto the makeshift raft. Dean grabbed the animal and put it on his shoulder, where it steadied itself with a panicked sinking in of claws. Anchored, it held on as Dean trudged back. Back on dry land, Dean peeled the cat off like an octopus that wrapped itself around him. Holding it by the scruff, he held it out to Mason. Take her inside, he said. Get her something to eat. The boy accepted the cat, staring at her with disbelief at his luck. Dean watched the boy go inside. Absently, he scratched at his face, wincing when his finger lighted on the opened wound on his forehead. You ought to have stitches, Vicky said. He looked her way, his expression soft as he seemed to ponder what she'd said, or something about her. She kept her distance, though, remaining out of arm's reach. It'll be all right, he said. You're sweet to worry. She tucked her chin to her chest and made to slip away. But generosity for his forgiveness welled in her, and she offered, I could clean it again, if you want me to. He nodded. I'll finish up and come in. She felt him watching all the way to the door, but when she turned to look, he was already hunting for nails again. Chimney was curled up in Mason's lap. It was two months later, and the constant clatter of roofers on nearby houses drove the cat to hide during the day. 
It slunk out from its hiding place at night to demand attention, accepting the passing affection of Vicky or Dean, but much preferring to be petted by Mason. So glad of a thing that would love her son, Vicky never did get around to bringing the cat back to its rightful owners. Anyway, hadn't they left the poor thing to fend for itself during a storm? Dean had rescued it, Mason had given it a name, and Vicky would make sure they kept it. It was turning cold. Vicky put on a jacket and went to find her husband. He'd taken to helping the neighbors when he got home from work. He joked that if he didn't, everyone would resent them because the Blackwell home had been in shining order when the neighbors returned. The insurance companies had denied nearly everyone's claims, there always being an added policy they ought to have taken out, and Dean and his tool belt made the rounds. She followed the rhythmic zip-zip of a handsaw to where her husband was. He and Mr. Garner were cutting the last of the boards needed to fix his back steps. Seeing Vicky cross the yard towards them, Mr. Garner elbowed Dean. You ladies come calling. Vicky told Dean it was near time for dinner. He nodded and said he'd be there soon, but Mr. Garner told him to go ahead and leave everything where it was. It'll keep until tomorrow. Dean bid Garner goodnight. With his arm around his wife's shoulders, they started walking. They were at the house shortly, but he urged her on with him. Not yet. Let's take a look. This had become a tradition. He liked to drag Vicky with him to see how repairs were coming along in the neighborhood. Since he'd helped with many of the houses, she knew it gave him a sense of pride seeing their little slice of Clydesville reclaimed from the storm. They walked, staring at the new roof on one house, the new fence around another, until they came to the end of the neighborhood where one house was marked for demolition. The water had taken weeks to recede here, and when it did, it left behind this soggy dwelling, stinking of mold. The former inhabitants had already received a check, being one of the lucky few, and had taken the opportunity to move to a better neighborhood. Vicky didn't like looking at the house. Further down, she knew, at the bottom of the slope, was where they'd found the mystery body. The soupy water had collected there, and it was long after the storm when they found the sack of skin and bone that had once been a man. The hot sun had turned the stagnant water into a liquefying stew, and animals had been at the body too, ensuring that there wasn't enough left to identify the poor bastard. All that was left of his clothes was the elastic band from a pair of boxer shorts. The discovery had spawned all kinds of legends amongst the children of the town. Details were confused, and people came to misremember that the body was found headless, but this wasn't the case. It seemed to Vicky that if it did have its head, somebody ought to be able to find out who it was by the teeth. But the newspaper explained that without any missing persons from Clydesville, there weren't any records to check against. So forensics teams gathered evidence and took photographs. These, Vicky supposed, would sit in a file or database until something turned up. If something turned up. You're shivering, Dean said. Let's go back. They turned away from the doomed house and made their way home. The edges of the hamburger casserole were burnt. Vicky had found it hard to keep her eyes on the stove with her husband and son laboring over homework at the kitchen table. Dean showed the boy, step by step, how to solve the harder problems. Her husband liked to pretend he wasn't book smart, but she knew he had a good head for numbers. Though she couldn't remember having ever seen him help their son with homework. Mason caught on quickly, and Dean nudged his shoulder, asking if he thought he was smarter than his old man. 
The cat was having a grand time beneath the table, rubbing against their legs. The whole scene was something straight out of a 50s magazine ad. Whatever it was selling, Vicky would buy it. After dinner, she told Mason he could watch TV. But only half an hour. It's already late. Dean begged for an extension, though, saying that he'd promised Mason he could finish a movie. With a feigned sigh of reproval, she said, Fine, but then right to bed. Mason agreed, dashing for the living room. I swear the two of you are conspiring against me, she said to Dean. He stood up and held out his hand to her. Come on. Where? she asked. Dean jerked his head in the direction of the bedroom. So that was it. He's got another hour on that movie. He'll hear, she objected, but she was already following him to the bedroom. In the dark, it was her that had to be reminded to keep quiet. Her body trembled with pinpricks of pleasure every time his fingers or tongue found some new way to delight her. After, her body vibrated like a tuning fork, humming a silent note of contentment. He put his arm around her, squeezing her to him, and she was surprised by how wiry he felt against her soft flesh, almost skeletal. She breathed in his scent. Not his old scent of beer and sweat, but the other one he'd had after going into the water for chimney. The night after he rescued the stranded cat, Vicky watched him while he slept. He seemed a stranger. She wondered if the gash on his head was the outward symptom of some brain injury. Or maybe his own violence during the storm had appalled him and he'd tried his best to be a different sort of man now. Only, with him asleep, had she come close enough to notice that he smelled of fall? She attributed this to the black water he'd waded in that day. The smell would disappear, she told herself. And when it did, the old Dean would return. Weeks had passed since then, and the smell showed no signs of dissipating. She inhaled him now and pulled his bone-thin arm more tightly around her. That was Jonathan Robbins Leon's Man of the House, as read by Alex Ford. Alex Ford spends most of her time cooped up in a closet reading to herself. Sometimes she edits and narrates books, too. She likes cats, food, wine, and scary stories best. She likes you, too. Feel free to make contact on Instagram at SeriouslyAlex or to be summarily ignored on Facebook though she does occasionally open the messenger. Thank you, Alex. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Again, don't forget our two contests, Flash Fiction and our contest for a free copy of Becky the Movie. And if you're not already a supporter, I encourage you to head over and have a look at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash tales to terrify, and have a look at all of the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shoutouts and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. 
If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app? Ratings and reviews are an easy way to get the word out and help us to spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon forth eldritch terrors with more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.